Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode where I'm continuing along our journey, deep diving into anxiety. I'm starting to deep dive into specific aspects of anxiety. I don't like getting caught into content. We really want to focus on the process of anxiety and how it shows up, but sometimes it's helpful to deep dive a little bit into certain things that think people are struggling with. And today I want to start focusing on hoarding because this is really something I've been getting so many more referrals. It's something I used to work with a long time ago, found that it was secondary to a lot of things that people were coming to me to see, but seeing it worse again, especially since the pandemic. It's one of those things that can get really tricky because oftentimes people, they don't even realize how stuck they've become with the hoarding behaviors. And then it's just so overwhelming. And then there's embarrassment and shame that comes along with it, right? So I I think that it's definitely an important one, but it's usually a silent one that we don't necessarily see unless there's other things coming up. So there's so much to talk about for today. I'm just going to talk about hoarding, what it is, things to think about. And next week we can start focusing on what we can do about it. But there is quite a few pieces here that we need to focus on. So first let's talk about what it is. Hoarding disorder became its own unique mental health disorder about 10 years ago. So in 2013, hoarding has always been here. It's always been a thing, right? But it was previously recognized just as a symptom of something else, specifically obsessive compulsive personality disorder. But now we recognize that it's more, so much more than just a symptom, right? It's its own distinct uh, diagnosis because it's still related to OCD. I think that that's important, right? So we can look at that, but it's important to know that it is its separate diagnosis because there were so many ineffective treatments before for hoarding because it was mostly developed for OCD specifically. And there's so many more things that we need to think about than just OCD. So now that it's recognized as its own diagnosis, we see so many more effective treatment interventions targeting all the different unique aspects of hoarding behaviors. And there are quite a few that we need to think about. And that's why I wanted to focus on this one, because sometimes there are types of anxieties that we need to consider above and beyond just the normal process. Uh, When we look at prevalence rates, it's kind of tricky to determine like a lot of things. The estimates are about two to 6% of people, but there's so many factors that can make it really hard to know exactly how many, just because there's so much denial lack of insight or awareness that their hoarding is even a problem or insight into how bad it actually is, right? And like I said, the shame and the embarrassment, oftentimes that keeps the hoarding hidden. And so we don't even necessarily know what the prevalence rate is. And even if there is awareness, a lot of individuals with hoarding disorders, they're resistant to change, right? And so their symptoms just continue to persist and they don't seek intervention. And unfortunately, the longer it persists, the more severe the symptoms become. And we see the most severe hoarding is usually in the older populations because they've had all of those years to acquire and to fall into those habits and and patterns that become so problematic. Um, You know, so after 50 is usually where we start seeing people coming finally, you know, oftentimes it's family members who who are bringing them in, but that's usually when we start seeing you know, average age is around 50 for interventions. Um, But like any other anxiety disorder, we actually see it starting in childhood and adolescence. So with anything, early intervention is so critical and it's just harder. We can still work on it way later, but it's just harder the longer it goes, the longer it persists, the more severe it becomes. The impairments, they're not as noticeable in childhood. And so oftentimes we see it go into adulthood from childhood because it's not as impairing, usually because they've got pain 
parents on their back, right? So parents are making sure that, no, you're not bringing anything in until you start getting rid of things, right? So parents are making things happen. They're making sure that decluttering is happening. They're making sure their kiddos aren't acquiring too much, right? Um, but so that's something important, but it's not to say that hoarding isn't there. We already are seeing it in childhood. There's just other factors that are making it so that it's not becoming impairing. If you do wonder about hoarding though, um, and you know, if in your kiddo and you're making sure that the cluttering isn't happening and they're not bringing in new things, you can start looking at, do they get excessively attached to things? It could be to their stuffies. It could be to their papers. They really have a hard time letting things go. That's important to think of. Um, obviously, like I said, a lot of people aren't getting treatment until they're about 50, which is a major problem because by then those, those symptoms become so significant and, and the effects of hoarding become so massive and it becomes a health risk, right? A mental health risk, a physical health risk. We often even just see complaints in the community of other people once the hoarding, the decluttering or the cluttering starts ending up going out into the world outside of their house. I think we all have an idea about what hoarding disorder is, but let's just get into exactly what it is so that we're all on the right page. So generally speaking, there's this urge to acquire objects, right? So I, I need to get it, whether I'm buying it or whatever. And then there's this need to save the objects. We, we see that individuals, they have a um, really hard time, even once they acquire things, they can't discard anything, even things that other people would consider garbage. And then the more people are trying to say, this is garbage, the more they're holding on to it, right? So they have a hard time because they have this perceived need to save that item, right? Or they have this just significant distress at the thought of discarding anything. And so it's the need to acquire and the distress to discard. The functioning is impaired because of the excessive clutter that, that takes up their living space. And it becomes so significant that their living spaces aren't aren't usable anymore, right? So now they can't even cook in their kitchen. Now they can't even sleep in their bedroom because that clutter is taken over. So I think there's just so many pieces to consider. And it's not just that difficulty discarding. It's, it's like I said, that overwhelming need to save items, right? And they'll usually come up with all sorts of reasons to justify keeping things. But oftentimes it's really to avoid the negative feelings associated with discarding. And so it becomes this avoided behavior. And I'm going to be talking about that in a minute because it's really important that we think about that. But for the full disorder, they have to also accumulate possessions that clutter, okay? So they have trouble discarding, but they're also accumulating that clutter. There is a specifier and that's called excessive acquisition. So that describes the presentations of hoarding disorder that are prim primarily associated with acquiring items. So that's buying things that they don't need, just, just in case maybe they're collecting items, they're going to flea markets and to garage sales. Sometimes they're even stealing things. So it's, they're actually bringing new things into the house. Now, even though it's only a specifier, we know that most people experiencing hoarding disorder actually also acquire things. But I do know people who aren't going out to buy things, oftentimes because they have other conditions like agoraphobia, for example. And so they're not actually leaving their house to be able to go to um, you know, flea markets and things like that, but they definitely never throw anything away. So anything that comes into their homes, 
flyers, brochures, containers from takeout food, things like that. They're collecting all of those things. They're not getting rid of them. Women, usually we see more of the excessive buying, but men certainly do as well. It's not just women, but women usually are the ones who, you know, have the excessive buying. Men are usually the ones who collect things. They collect all the free things and they're more likely to steal than women. But again, women certainly do as well. We do tend to see excessive acquisition more in adults than kiddos, but our kiddos definitely collect things and they collect and they collect and they don't want to throw anything away. So they, you know, they just don't have the money resources to go and buy things. Um, and people are probably stopping them, but they are going to collect wherever they can. So that's something to think about. What do people hoard? It could be anything, anything, flyers, newspapers, little papers of notes or bills, you know, anything papery, spoons, pieces of wood, collectibles, coffee cups. I've even seen chicken bones, right? It, it, it's, it's anything and everything. Um, they usually don't seem to have any value to other people, but they often hold maybe a lot of sentimental value to those who are hoarding, or, you know, maybe they think it's going to be really useful in the future for them, or maybe useful for someone else. They're going to hold it for somebody else, right? Most people will, will, hold both inanimate objects. So that's like the paper and the bills and the wood, not, not living things, but some also have animate objects as well, which are animals usually. And a lot of the times those who hoard animals, they usually have more severe hoarding challenges and they often have really poor insight into their behaviors, right? And they're actually putting themselves at increased risk for health problems because they're not necessarily cleaning up very well after all of these animals that they've got. And we see this emotional attachment and it can be to items, but also with the animals, right? And they usually have this overwhelming need to take care of them, you know, this major sense of obligation. And that's why they're hoarding the animals, even though unfortunately the animals are often malnourished and they're neglected. Um, some people won't remove the bodies of the animals once they die, right? And they're not necessarily cleaning up. So it really becomes a health hazard quite significantly. Um, not everybody hoards animals, but people who do hoard animals usually also hoard other things as well. Now, when we look at comorbidity, we do see a lot of hoarding behaviors with individuals with ADHD, because I'll be talking about some of the executive functioning skills, especially once we get into the treatment, but also oftentimes it goes hand in hand with other anxiety disorders and depression and other things that are going on. Now, I just want to turn uh, to some of the big considerations when we're talking about hoarding. Um, you know, what hoarding is, we've already talked a little bit about that. That gives you a brief overview. There's so many things that we could talk about. Um, I really want to talk about what maintains hoarding, right? And I think that that's really important. If you listen to previous episodes, it's so important, especially where I talk about anxiety is maintained. We don't necessarily need to get into the causes of hoarding, just like we don't need to get into the whys of somebody's experiencing anxiety. We could be spinning our wheels, right? And that's kind of what anxiety wants. It wants us to spin our wheels. Why, 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 why? We could be there all day. There's so many different reasons, right? There's lots of different sort of distal uh, vulnerability factors. So genetics, family history, maybe there was disrupted attachment, you know, early experiences, traumatic life experiences that could have all be contributing, not causing certainly because people would have had very similar experiences and don't hoard. So it's not a direct causal, but certainly things that could be contributing it. 
all, all of those are important, certainly, but it's not necessarily uber valuable now. Sometimes we do need to look at those things, but we really want to look at what's happening now, right? So even though those things are help, helpful to know, what's directly contributing to and maintaining that hoarding is what's most important. So we know that there's things like information processing challenges, like executive functioning skill deficits. And that's why we see such high comorbidity with ADHD, for example. We've got these smart, very brilliant super smart individuals, but they're sort of scattered, right? So they have trouble with decision-making, categorizing, prioritizing, even just differentiating what truly is valuable, what truly is important versus not really so important, right? Oftentimes they have trouble sustaining their focus and their effort, you know, especially if they've got this huge clutter problem, it just becomes so overwhelming. And guess what? A core deficit when we're looking at executive functions is emotion regulation. And so they become so overwhelmed overwhelmed that they just can't focus on the decluttering. And so it just continues and continues. So there's the information processing deficits. We need to work on some of the skills that they need, but oftentimes people with hoarding disorder, they also hold really tight to maladaptive beliefs about how important something is, how useful or sentimental those items are. And so they, they, they just, it's, it's just, they justify and justify why they're holding on to these things. And they often have this heightened sense of responsibility for their possessions, right? So there's these huge emotional responses and huge emotional connections that they create with their items. And then they end up falling into behavior traps because it's all so overwhelming. They don't declutter, right? And so that's just causing more clutter and more clutter and on and on it goes. It just never stops. Now, when we look at hoarding behaviors, like I said, it can start very young. Oftentimes, a lot of anxiety does start in children and teenagers. And I have a lot of kiddos who demonstrate hoarding behaviors. And one of the key maintaining variables when we're looking at what is maintaining it, because that's what we need to address. Oftentimes, it's family members. They are accommodating it. So yes, while parents can stay on top of things and make sure their kiddos aren't acquiring new things and trying to declutter, sometimes they're allowing them to have that strong attachment, not go anywhere without their stuffy, right? Um, but oftentimes I see parents, they will let their kiddos keep everything or garbagey things, or maybe they'll put limits on it. You can have whatever you want in this box or as long as it stays in your room right? But, but oftentimes they're letting, they're making concessions where kids can keep some of these things. And I've even seen parents who aren't throwing things away, even things it's their own stuff. It's not even their kids stuff, but it's old furniture, old clothes, and they're not throwing them away. They're just going to, okay, we'll put it in or telling their kids, we're just going to store it in the garage because their kids are just they just feel so much distress. They don't want their kids to feel that way. Right. So they just want to keep the peace in the house. They don't want to cause a fight. They don't want to cause distress, but when we're allowing kiddos to keep everything and they're agreeing to keep things themselves, things that aren't even their kiddos, you know, they just don't want to put up the fight. We're actually reinforcing that message that, Hey, see, this obviously is really important. This is really valuable. You're right. We better hold on to it. It's just reinforcing that anxiety and that distress. I need to keep it. So the distorted beliefs about how meaningful something is or how useful something is, that's a huge maintaining variable as well. And I hear it all the time. Oh, my grandma gave me this, or, oh man, this was my neighbor's great aunt's uncle's 
third removed <laughs> item and it's so valuable. It's going to be so useful. Or, you know, maybe I don't need it, but my children or one day if I have grandchildren, maybe they'll find it useful, right? I, I just, somebody might need it one day. Um, and so we get caught into these traps, these thinking traps, and they get sucked in. I call them the little committee members, right? So if you haven't checked out my previous episodes, I'm talking about these committee members are our, our inner critics, right? Who just suck us in into these anxiety traps. And, and those thinking traps is what keeps us in the excessive acquisition and failure to discard. We, we get stuck in the hoarding behaviors. And then guess what? When we're stuck there, our bodies react. As soon as we even have the thought of throwing something away, that can create so much physiological distress, right? All of that distress with whether it's not getting something or discarding things, that's usually where the distress is. That makes it very real. It makes it very overwhelming. And it gives that object even more salience, even more importance. What ends up happening is we start to avoid those feelings of distress. We're avoiding all of those worried thoughts about avoiding doing the thing that upsets us, i.e. decluttering and discarding, right? discarding anything. And so that avoidance becomes a major maintainer of anxiety because I feel better when I keep things, I feel better. I'm just going to put it here because then I feel better. And we're reinforcing the brain and reinforcing that belief because now we feel better. And so if you've listened to my previous episodes, I've talked a lot about how avoidance ends up becoming a problem because when we're avoiding that conditioned stimulus, in this case, discarding items, for example, it prevents extinction from happening. And to manage anxiety, we have to have that extinction happening. So when it comes to hoarding, that means the individuals who engage in those hoarding behaviors, they're never learning that discarding is okay. Discarding is actually not that bad. The distress that comes with discarding is actually temporary and I'm going to survive. So they never gather that evidence against their catastrophic thinking and that distressing experiencing, right? And so they continue those distressing misappraisals, unfortunately, and we're actually reinforcing their beliefs, reinforcing those avoidant behaviors because they feel better by keeping their stuff. Even if in the back of their mind, they feel shameful and they know that they need to do changes in the short term, they feel better. And so in the short term, they're reinforcing, reinforcing, reinforcing the brain. There's also this overprediction of distress in which they think just how extremely terribly awful it would be if they had to discard anything. So again, that's going to reinforce that avoidance, right? And it's going to keep them stuck again in that loop because we know that experiential avoidance, so avoiding discarding things, it directly predicts symptoms and the severity of those things, because they want to avoid all of those unpleasant emotions, all of those unpleasant thoughts and those physiological feelings, because they cannot tolerate them. And that's what anxiety wants us to believe is I can't handle it. Right. So that experiential avoidance, like I said, it's associated not only with discarding, but even acquisition in the first place. And then the clutter too that creates this tolerance for more and more and more and more and more. And so oftentimes families are like, how do we get here? Because it started out with just little piles of things, right? And then for some family members, when they go away, because it gets so cluttered and they don't come back for another year or two, all of a sudden the entire home is cluttered. And they're like, how did my mother or father or friend get here, right? And it's that individual didn't notice it because they're building a tolerance. This little pile becomes this little pile becomes a bigger pile, becomes the entire bedroom, 
right? So they're just building this tolerance for more and more stuff. And we actually see a lot more people also suffering OCD symptoms and hoarding when they avoid. So the most problematic avoidance is usually the unwillingness to experience negative effective states. That's, that's what they're doing by collecting more, not throwing away. They're just avoiding that distress, right? That physical distress that the worry brain likes to trigger. Just even talking about discarding, that's really distressing right? And just like everything I've talked about, anxiety is anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. Yes, there's extra things that we need to think about with hoarding, but, and here we happen to be talking about that, but all of those things still happen. Our brain cannot tell the difference between a real threat and the thought of discarding a piece of paper. And those emotions just become so overwhelming. So that avoidance, it's really a matter of, of avoiding the internal distress, which predicts the hoarding behavior. So it's not so much about the discarding, it's about, it's just so uncomfortable to have to discard. So that's what we need to focus on, right? Um, it can though, it's really helpful to know how that avoidance manifests behaviorally. So once we look at the maintaining variables, those are the things when we get to intervention that we have to treat, but we also can consider how that uh, that avoidance is manifesting behaviorally. For sure, obviously we know they're keeping things. That's one of the things that they're doing. Sometimes people try to distract themselves, which we know only intensifies anxiety because of the ironic processing in the brain. Don't think of a white bear. Whatever you do, don't think of a white bear, right? It's just one poor mechanism that we're replacing with another poor coping mechanism. Denial, that's another coping mechanism that really isn't helping denying that there is even a problem in the first place. This one gets in the way of even getting help in the first place. Right. And it can be really hard and it can be disruptive to relationships because of all the fighting and fighting and people just walk out of their lives. Kids are really easy because you know, their parents are there. Right. And so parents see that it's a problem. They come in for help, but with a lot of adults that I've treated, they were fairly isolated, right? Nobody was visiting them anymore. They weren't nurturing their relationships. It was always a fight. So it was just became too much. And so they were really isolated in their lives and they're not asking for help or seeking for help themselves. So a lot of them, if they were coming for help, it was usually for something else. It was secondary, right? And then hoarding some of the time they would mention something, but most of the time it was revealed accidentally, so to speak. Right. And sometimes I, I I've had to go do home visits and that's when I realized, oh man, hoarding is something we need to focus on. Not even knowing that that was a thing. But oftentimes they develop their own coping strategies. They're just ineffective. And so that interferes with their functioning and it can blur even their life goals and their life values and what's really important to them. So they just get sucked into that. And so these avoidant behaviors, it really skews their outlook on life, right? And they're thinking, and it just maintains that hoarding behavior. So the reason I keep talking about um, all of this avoidance, and I've talked about it so much in previous episodes too, is that that's a key problem in all of anxiety and definitely for hoarding right? It's that avoidance that we really need to address because the avoidance serves to reduce that distress that we're feeling in the body, right? And, and it's related to the thinking traps about the necessity and the utility of possessions, which therefore just keeps people stuck in these vicious cycles. So that's why I talk so much about avoidance and why we need to consider that because that is one of the biggest traps and maintainers of anxiety and certainly with hoarding as well. 
Now there's of course, a few considerations as always, uh, there's experiential avoidance that predicts both the acquisition of things. So getting new things and difficulty discarding things. So acquiring and saving in and of itself, that's an avoidant behavior. So people can avoid that internal distress related to their thoughts and emotions that come with discarding, right? So they keep acquiring as a way to cope because they're feeling better, right? And we see a lot of buying addiction in a lot of people. It's just, we feel better. We get that rush. But then the avoidance is a consequence of the experiential avoidance of not wanting to tolerate the distress that comes with discarding. And I know that I sound like a broken record now, but that's so important that we address and consider. So that's experiential avoidance. Now, when we look at behavioral avoidance, such as self-distraction, that is more related to clutter. Okay. So acquiring and saving that creates clutter, obviously, because we're getting things, but we're not getting rid of, rid of things. So clutter is a consequence of that behavioral avoidance. And so acquiring is actually a form of self-distraction. And so we see these behaviors just compounding on themselves in so many different areas that become such a big problem. And so this is important to remember too, for when we get to interventions, because if we don't address the self-distraction piece, people are going to continue to clutter. So even if they're learning all of the other skills and they're learning to declutter, right, even in the process of trying to declutter they engage in self-distraction. And this piece is often missed in treatment. And so that's why I wanted to talk about that again. So the acquiring on the one hand is, you know, one of the problematic behaviors, but becomes a coping mechanism that is just fueling everything else when we're looking at hoarding. So that is a really quick, brief overview of hoarding in and of itself a few very important things that I've talked about, that's going to help lead us into how do we actually help these people? Because, you know, we got to address the skill deficits. We have to address the toler the tolerance of distress, tolerating all of the things that come up <laughs> with the anxiety of being able to discard, right? But we also need to address some of those other things like behavioral avoidance, like self-distraction, denial, all of those pieces are going to be so important. And with hoarding, it's so just like I've talked about before with anxiety, we have to get their buy-in because we can't just start throwing stuff away. They need to be bought into the process. If we want to see long-term gains, it's really important that we establish the relationship, the trust within our relationship is so key. And we're making sure that they've got the skills and they have the understanding so that we can do the work and that we maintain those successes. So there's a lot of things that we always have to think about because I see so many people regress because we're not addressing some of those other pieces. Maybe it's a grieving process for them when they see their empty space there's this emptiness that they need to fill. So there's just so many pieces that we need to consider when it comes to hoarding, but I will leave it there for today. Definitely join me next week when I, I'll, I will go into the intervention and address some of those key things that I've talked about for today. Like always, uh, follow me, Facebook, LinkedIn. I've got my consultation groups and you can deep dive with me in the Mastery Compass training program as well. Book a call if you want to just chat and see how we might be able to work together. Otherwise, I will see you next time. Take care.